Welcome to the Next Level Brands Podcast, where we share stories about the food and CPG world with experts in the trenches about how to build a successful brand today. Now, your host, G. Stephen Clear. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining us here at the Next Level Brands Podcast. Our podcast today is brought to you by Kitchen to Shelf. Kitchen to Shelf is the educational arm of the Next Level Brands CPG community and a provider of online and in-person courses and workshops for CPG entrepreneurs in all stages of growth. Whether you're an early stage startup, a local growing business, or a regional powerhouse, kitchentoshelf.com can help you learn what you need to know to grow. That's kitchen2shelf.com. Hi, I'm Steve Clear, and saying hello to our listeners out there today. We have a great show for you. I'm being joined by Renee Dunn, who is the founder and CEO of Amazi Foods, a mindful food company making some unique and very tasty fruit snacks. While attending Wesleyan University, Renee had the opportunity to study in Uganda. She was struck there by the local entrepreneurial sector and their delicious tropical fruits, so she opted to return to conduct her thesis research there on the state of entrepreneurship in Kampala. After graduating, Renee interned at the Aspen Institute, where she focused on entrepreneurial ecosystem analysis and other hard things to say. Combining her passion for healthy food, her development experience, and her entrepreneurial spirit, she founded Amazi in 2016 to solve the problems she described in her thesis. Welcome to the program, Renee. Hey, how are you? Thanks for saying all those big words. Whoa. I'll t- I, you know, okay, <laughs> so so the, the combination of academics and entrepreneurship is not always there. No. <laughs> but, but you had a pretty amazing journey to do this. And, um, you know, I, I, I want to know a little bit more about, so, you know, you went to school. Did you go to school with the idea, I'm going to get an MBA and I'm going to work for Procter & Gamble or whatever. How did that evolve into, first of all, your African studies and then the idea of helping entrepreneurs? For sure. So um, I went to a liberal arts college, Wesleyan. Um, and us liberal arts folks, I don't think we go into it with the intention of getting an MBA. <laughs> I think we're kind of just like, we're, well, let's see what I find out. Let's see where the world takes me. Um, but no, I mean, I, I don't know if I knew that I wanted to go into entrepreneurship per se. Um, I think what I had thought was that I, A, economics was in my blood. So my grandfather was an econ professor. My dad is an economist his entire career. I was like, why not? Seems like a safe bet. Okay. And, yeah. and then the other thing I was thinking too is that I had, I was really lucky um, growing up to travel a lot. Um, and my dad specifically brought me to Uganda actually for the first time when I was in middle school. And um, just having, both of my parents had to travel internationally for work. We had family internationally. And so I was pretty inclined to spend time understanding other cultures, spend time, you know, seeing how other people did things. And I think in particular, I was interested in quote unquote, you know, development econ or development studies because um, kind of seeing what my dad had done and, and having the chance to visit various sub-Saharan African countries, for example, that's sort of what first got me interested right. in, in that area. Um, and, you know, I, I think in, in sort of academically looking at what sort of <laughs> the political economy, so to speak, of yeah. entrepreneurship was in a particular region actually started to get me thinking about like, cool, like that's a cool theory, Renee, or that's a cool concept. But like, I'm personally somebody who's so I am a, 
problem solver. <laughs> and so it was one thing to identify the problem, but I couldn't quite just be like, cool, that's a problem that we've identified. I think I'm somebody who's like, okay, there's a gap here. What are we going to do about it? And so that's sort of what started me thinking to kind of take it off paper um, and into like an actual thing. <laughs> so, so in Uganda, other African yeah. countries, um, a more decentralized economy, mm-hmm. uh, but that almost promotes entrepreneurship in a certain mm-hmm. way because yeah. right we're 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 all in this together and we're all in local whatever. Did when you went, did you see a um well let me ask you the other question? Is how were the fruits being handled before they were being exported? So what was the how did that work within the economy? Yeah. So just touching on two things you just said, you are incredibly correct in saying that it's a very entrepreneurial economy. Um, And that's sort of what I was so perplexed by was that there's so much local activity. You know, people in Uganda kind of joke that they have five businesses or they're a weekend farmer or there's always hustle happening and and there's no shortage of activity. Um, But I think sort of what I was noticing specifically with the fruit is that, you know, it's, there are very few outlets, so to speak. So there'd be fruits um, sitting on the roadsides, you know, stand after stand after stand, you'd see the exact same fruit. You'd also see, you know, middlemen come through and just distribute it out to who knows where. And then there was an export market, but that was very much limited to um, kind of as we think about sourcing today, you know, for example, if something is ethically sourced or fair trade, that's great because the farmer is getting a higher wage. But when that transaction is happening, they're still entirely disconnected from all the other steps in the supply chain, you know, that would show people what else happens with the fruit that they're growing. And so as a result, you know, the entrepreneurship that is occurring is all kind of doing the exact same thing. You know, it's trading raw products, um, and there's very, there's some value add, but it's never with the intention of scaling, you know, it's never with the intention of, um, you know, I guess it's not seen as quite a possibility as it is here. And so as a result, there's just a lot of unemployment, a lot of food waste, and just, in my opinion, a lot of missed opportunity for people there to be doing the high value jobs that we do over here. Um, and so that's sort of what I was noticing. And so, and, and we we don't have video, so we'll have to tell folks. But but um, uh, so of the of the things you were looking at, you eventually chose plantain, mm-hmm. plantains in chip form, mm-hmm. jackfruit, mm-hmm. right, and papaya, some mm-hmm. papaya, right? Okay, so it's not totally unknown to Americans, but it's not necessarily the first thing that anybody's ever ever had. But they are, of course, incredibly delicious. By the way. And the chili and lime jackfruit shoes are like my favorite. And if people are trying to imagine a jackfruit, dry jackfruit, you haven't had it. Uh, imagine a delicious kind of gummy thing that just is awesome. I mean, just that they're great. Um, did you, is, is that like the bulk of the fruit that's there? Or did you pick those fruits because of what could be done with them after processing? So it's it's more the latter. Um, but the way I was thinking about it was that, okay, you know, there's been, uh, Uganda is an incredibly fertile country. They have like, you know, in, I've never seen so many kinds of fruit in one plot of land, for example. Yep. Yep. And um, 
kind of what I was noticing is that sort of fruits that I thought would be sort of considered unique, higher value, have really unique flavors, super nutritious. Those were sort of the ones that were less focused on because people were so focused on sort of commercial crops or, you know, um, crops that they could trade in mass. Um, and, and while that's, that's important. We, the way I built out our farmer relationships was to be like, Hey, we can open up these more high value revenue streams for these fruits that are kind of sitting in your backyard. Jackfruit in particular is not a commercialized fruit. It's just kind of sits there. And if you got it, you got it. it you know, it's like, they, they kind of make fun of the people. They leave it for the kids. Basically. It's like, right. eh, the kid's going to enjoy it. Um, so you know, to me, I'm like, well, that's something that would be exciting for someone with an American palate. You know, we're eager to discover new tropical fruits and flavors. And, and yes, you certainly have to do some education around it, but that's something that you're going to let rot in your backyard. But, you know, we could make a much higher value stream for it. We actually pay our farmers, I think on average, 67% above market price for the jackfruit. Um, And so that's something that, they wouldn't have had and is also not nearly as competitive as, you know, say if they're trying to trade like a mango or a pineapple or something uh, where, you know, that's, that's a very competitive market. Um, So that was part of how I chose the fruits for sure. So you identified in your thesis that there was (laughs) problems and opportunities, and I'm assuming some solutions, but that doesn't put you as part of the solution. So what happens after you do your thesis and you're interning or whatever at Aspen? Yeah. How did this evolve? Yeah. So it took me a couple of years to kind of figure out that I could be the solution. <laughs> um, I, I, you know, I worked in development at the Aspen Institute for a little while, kind of taking what I learned in my thesis and building a model around it. And, and I kind of got um, disillusioned, you know, with the whole world of like, what are we studying here? You know? What's the point of this? A typical liberal arts student questioning of reality. And, <laughs> and I ended up actually taking a couple of years um, pursuing my other passion, which was the wellness and fitness industry. And um, that's also how I kind of became more privy to, you know, innovation in the natural food space as well. Um, and I was managing a local small business. It was the yoga studio. I was managing the team and the operations there. I was also teaching and and um, just very abreast to sort of what I think of now as one of our, our main consumer bases, people who are active, people who are looking for clean fuel. That was me. Um, and so I think a couple of years into that, you know, I found that I, I don't know if there was one occurrence or anything where I was like, well, I'm, I'm, this is what I need to do. But it was sort of this nagging feeling of, you know, here's that market that, that like could, it, it was putting together, oh, there's this market, there's this innovative market and there are people paying money and there are people who are excited and eager and want to be connected. And I found this gap and, and I wonder what could happen here. And, and so kind of, a couple years out of school, I decided to take a risk and I was very fortunate to uh, have the invitation of my parents to live in their home when I got back if things didn't work out. But um, I basically just bought myself a ticket to Uganda and and, uh, spent a few months back there trying to build relationships and really understand how um, one might start a a business and how might, how, you know, we might start partnering with local 
local businesses or local farmers and, and try to promote more of that local value addition. Um, and so it was sort of like a percolation over time, <laughs> I would say. And, 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 and again, I, I talked to fellow entrepreneurs who complain that they have to drive 10 miles to their commercial kitchen. <laughs> Let, let's talk for a moment about physically supply chain, how this works. So you have jackfruit, you have plantains and jackfruit, as I see in the photographs, and I didn't realize this are actually pretty huge. Yeah. They can grow uh, to be like 80 pounds actually. Yeah. Wow. Um, so what, what happens? How, how does it work? How does that get into a bag and, and end up at uh, sprouts? I mean, how does it yeah. work? So that's a great question. And it's been an evolution over time. Um, so part of the key things of our mission, right, is that we want the product made in Uganda. And the idea behind that is that, again, ethical sourcing is great. Fair sourcing is great. But you're still completely disconnecting the resource economies from the people who are innovating, right? And right. so my goal was to have more innovation happen on the Uganda side so that there was more direct market access, local job creation, that kind of thing. So in the beginning, we had found a uh, dried fruit company um, and I essentially built a co-packer relationship with them um, that didn't really exist, but they were exporting in bulk to Europe. They had one customer in the US. So I was like, okay, they already have kind of baseline quality standards that I would need to follow. And so I spent a few months there in the beginning, kind of developing that relationship, developing initial recipes, that kind of thing. Um, and so the first few years, um, I would purchase in bulk from them. So we would import like kilo plus size bags of the product and I would hand pack it in a commercial kitchen here. Yes. Um, yeah, it was not the most glamorous and not the most fun. Uh, but that's what we did. And, and I think it became clear very early on, you know, in those first kind of three years of doing that scaling like that is very hard. Um, and for two main reasons, one is as a young brand, you know, and it's funny that you brought up the 10 miles to the local commercial kitchen, like we can't do sort of that iterative growth where it's like, I made a batch of cookies. I sell it on the local farmer's market. I use that money, buy more ingredients. Then I bake a little bit more the next time. And then I get into a store and then I make a little bit more. Like, because the supply chain is so spread out and it takes a lead time of however much to make something. And also the cost of importing, you can't just import a kilo. You have to import a certain amount to make it worthwhile. Minimum order quantity. Yeah, exactly. So we were importing product and had so many quality control issues. It was inconsistent. You know, we were getting feedback on the product as we were ordering it. And I think everyone deals with this to a degree, right? But for us, it was so much harder to kind of match up the supply and demand. Like it was, and yeah. and of course, because there was that one quote unquote co-packer, any sort of issues that we had with them were then translated directly into our business. Um, yeah. And you know, we finally had gotten to the pro- the product into a place where it was pretty good and we were starting to see traction and we were starting to see some demand from retailers. Um, you know, we've got the branding in place, all that stuff. Um, and we knew that in order to grow, we'd have to kind of have much more control over our production. Um, and so once we got demand from, uh, you know, a certain amount of stores, and in this case, 
it was Sprouts Market. Um, we were able to take the leap to have our product made now from start to finish in Uganda. And it's in our very own uh, dedicated production facility. So they actually pack it, send it to us retail ready. And we're just focusing over here on selling and distributing it. Got it. Wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's a supply chain nightmares we have known. Um, yeah. And, and that's really, I mean, that that's a plus, especially because then again, that also helps the Ugandan economy and a little closer to the source of where the, where the stuff is, is coming from. Yeah. Um, so when you had your, again, your model and stuff is all together in this set and the other, and you're going to sell at retail, uh, mm-hmm. you're now in, uh, in a number of stores. We'll talk a little bit more about that, but mm-hmm. obviously Sprouts and some other places you're with UNFI, mm-hmm. but when you knew you were going to have the product, you had to go out and do some selling. Sure. So, <laughs> so who, how, how did you, did you sit down and go, well, I think Sprouts is the right store. Or, or, you know, whatever, or how, how did you do that? And what was, who was, who was the first partner to come on board? Yeah. So in the early days, it was just me knocking. I'm, I live in Washington, DC and I would just drive kind of through the mid Atlantic. Um, I got, I think up to like 150 or so small accounts, you know, that we would all distribute to directly. And that was kind of the phase at which we were like, this is kind of a tough spot because it's big enough that it's like kind of a headache to start to manage, but it's, it's small enough that it doesn't, you know, it doesn't justify that jump in production. Like I was saying, and it's also, you know, when you're working with a number of independents, um, they're fantastic partners, especially in the beginning, but it is also harder demand to predict. Um, Mm -hmm. and so I, I did start to kind of put in submissions for, you know, the whole foods, the sprouts, this and that. And, um, I submitted to Sprouts because I knew that they were opening more in the mid-Atlantic and I had put us in for a local. Um, and the buyer came back and asked if we wanted to go national. And of course, I heard millions of horror stories about young brands that do that. So I was honest. And and I, this was back in March of 2019 is when we first got outreach um, back. And I was honest about our supply chain. I said, listen, you know, this would be a huge shift for us, uh, in terms of, you know, being able to, to change our supply chain. We've been looking for something like this, but, you know, we're a small brand and it's going to take us a little while to get there. And, and, you know, this is not something we can jump into. Right. Um, you know, what's the timeline? (laughs) And at first they were like, June. And I was like, okay, well, (laughs) I don't think I can make that happen for you. Um, but the buyer was actually really surprisingly, very patient. He said, you know, listen, um, circle back with me once you've made headway with your supply chain in the fall and let's see about an end of year launch. And so, um, that's sort of what we focused on is like, okay, if this is now our strategy and we're going to build out density around this and, and let this be our kind of quote unquote anchor account and, and kind of form our demand around that, what is that going to look like? Um, and, and also physically just building out the facility. Um, and I was just really lucky to, to be transparent through the whole process and have that conversation open about what we could and couldn't handle. And, um, when I came back in the fall and things were looking like they would be ready to go, um, we even were able to get a third skew in. So it, it worked out really well. And I don't know that those things always work out like that, (laughs) but I do think that, you know, we might be seeing more and more that 
And, you know, you and I were kind of talking about this before recording that it's one thing to get on the shelf. And obviously, once you're there, you have to figure it out. Um, but I do think that there is an interest more and more in, you know, these sustainable supply chains or these businesses that are going to help the stores tell a story or that we can tell a story together. Um, and I, I do think that being able to kind of invite the buyer in on the progress as it was happening and letting them know this is what we're working toward, this is what we're dealing with. Um, it, it did allow for kind of no surprises. And and uh, I think in some ways, a little bit of trust that maybe there wouldn't have been otherwise. So um, that sort of was what allowed us to scale our production. And since then, we've kind of been focusing on building density in the regions where uh, Sprouts is most dense for us. So that's mostly SOPAC, Southwest. Southwest um, and that's sort of where we've kind of seen natural uh, growth from there. And if folks want more information on Amazi Foods, they can go to? Amazifoods.com. There you go. Great. <laughs> and uh, um, so let's turn this around from sure. we've been talking about supply chain and distributors, whatever else. Yeah. Uh, I'm looking at beautiful packages of jackfruit chews and plantain chips. Mm-hmm. There's a consumer education component in here. For sure. Right. If, if you're, if you're bottling a barbecue sauce, everybody knows what a barbecue sauce is. And if you got a little heat in it, I, I get that. How did you, well, first of all, how did you identify other than yourself, your target persona? Mm-hmm. And then how did you handle getting people to to try these rather exotic fruits? Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's always an element of honing in on that, right? I think, you know, that that lesson is never, well, at least at our stage, I don't think we've 100% learned that lesson, right? I think we're still learning. But I will say that um, it was a couple things. I, as a consumer previously, and, and this is sort of what I validated over time, was that <laughs> I was part of this sort of like clean eating. Um, when I first started paying attention to labels, I was very strict paleo, whatever, mostly plant-based though. You know, I was kind of the paleo person that doesn't eat that much red meat. Uh, but, um, I was somebody who was a label reader and I knew that that was a growing market, especially given that I was involved in the wellness and the fitness community. Um, and what I noticed was that if you're looking for snacks or products, what have you, you kind of have two camps. You either have these super rich, like nutty, chocolatey bite type things, which have, you know, they're clean, but, you know, they're dense and, and there's just a lot happening. And your other alternative is just like plain nuts or plain dried fruit. And I was like, well, there must be something more exciting that has just as short of an ingredient list that, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't be the boring run-of-the-mill dried fruit kind of thing. And so that's sort of the concept that I had in mind is that I want to take dried fruit and add a twist. I want to invite in new flavors, new spices, new flavor profiles that people can kind of get behind the concept, but when they taste them, it's a totally different experience. Um, And I do think that's what we've been able to do. And, And I think part of how I position it is, you know, again, sort of that bold flavors, um, unique textures, but that nice short list that you might be looking for. Right. Um, yeah. and, and that the jackfruit chews, I typically educate people by telling them that it's like, um, a grown-up fruit roll-up. Like, uh, yeah, yeah it's kind of, yes. exactly. It's like sticky, chewy, sweet. Um, but it'll have these fun spices like chili and lime or ginger and turmeric that we might consider quote unquote grown-up. Uh, and then, um, our plantain chips are, 
a bit harder to educate on because I think similar to barbecue sauce, people might be like, oh, I know what a plantain chip is, but they are very unlike other plantain chips and we actually don't merchandise them with other chips. Um, we typically merchandise them with other dehydrated snacks. And right. that's because they're the texture is almost as caramelized texture as opposed to like a fried texture. They're dried and roasted instead of fried. They have kind of a subtly sweet flavor as opposed to being purely savory. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's been kind of like taking this item that people might think they know and offering sort of a cleaner twist on it. Um, and, and it's, it, it, as a result, it becomes a lot more versatile. So, you know, our target demographic, I think is one that's very active on the go. We're really great for people who travel often for moms who are looking for a quick grab, um, for people who are going hiking. And so kind of having that versatile twist, I think really helps us reach those people because that's exactly what they're looking for when they're on the go. So, yeah. Um, how did the pandemic affect your business? Yeah. So, um, I think in the end we've, you know, emerged stronger and with some partnerships that we wouldn't have embarked on if the pandemic hadn't happened. Um, and I can touch on that in a second, but I think obviously supply chain and logistics was a challenge for everybody. And as you might imagine, an international supply chain in a developing country, uh, had, Uh, had its challenges, uh, you know, for the most part, they've smoothed over. I think we're all kind of still hit by the freight market. You know, uh, for us, the biggest change was that we had to switch. We used to be able to afford air freight because our volumes were not so big. It was actually cheaper to just air freight it. And and certainly, you know, that totally affects your production planning and, and uh, lead times. Oh, um, yeah. But we had to s- switch to ocean freight um, as soon as the pandemic hit because air freight was just astronomical and it still is. So we dealt with a lot of sort of inventory issues in the beginning where our sales weren't happening at the rate that we had expected in the beginning. We were having to produce more because we were doing ocean freight. The lead times were longer. We were sitting on inventory. And so it did have to, like, we kind of had to turn it into cash, right? Like I'm sitting on inventory. I have to turn it into cash. It was getting to the point where like, okay, he wouldn't take it because it was below the guaranteed shelf. Like, you know, I was really in the beginning freaking, <laughs> freaking out. And um, I, it did allow us to find some other channels. For example, like one of our strongest partners, and that's been great for discovery too, is uh, Misfits Market. They, they do subscription grocery, kind of like Imperfect yep. Foods, if you know them. And, um, they'll buy things that are a little bit more short dated and they'll buy them in volumes. And we actually sell to them at a margin that's close to what we would sell our distributors. And it's been great to reach like-minded consumers at home because the people who are ordering those boxes are looking for organic, looking for sustainable anyway. Um, and we've actually seen, that's been one of the channels that I've actually seen people come back and say, I found this on Misfits or I added this to my Misfits box and now I'm coming to your website or now I found this at Sprouts or now this. So it's been kind of a twofer in terms of like helping us really move inventory, but also actually I think a marketing tool. Um, and, and so again, that's something that I certainly would not have thought of as like a revenue stream for us um, prior to the pandemic and prior to those issues with inventory, for example. So that's just one of the, one of the many challenges beyond just like trying to find ways to motivate myself sitting in my studio apartment every day, you know, things like that. And, and how, how did you look at and handle e- e-commerce? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Um, 
definitely saw it go up. We are a relatively bootstrap business. So we are only now getting to the point that we feel prepared to invest in our e-commerce arm, but we definitely um, did a lot more sort of, recently I've been like talking to customers a lot more, um, paying attention to our email marketing flows, seeing how we're communicating with customers, optimizing the homepage and such, and and just kind of seeing naturally where we can kind of boost um, that organically before Right. We pour money in. Um, and yeah, I mean, year over year, I think it grew some like crazy 600% or something because it was uh, nothing yeah, before. Uh, um, but I, I, I will say that it's been really cool to see that we starting, we're starting to have like a returning customer base online and we're starting to have sort of, um, the referrals come in and we're starting to have the reviews come in. And, and so I think that we're, there's a lot more that we need to be learning from e-commerce and we do have it slotted out to be much bigger this year. Um, but I think using e-commerce as a tool to learn about why it is that people are buying and, and, you know, having that sort of direct access when, you know, you're so far removed on the, when it's on the shelf. Um, I think we've just been trying to really let that inform, you know, how we're wording things or how we're, um, pitching ourselves, that kind of thing. And, and, and in turn, trying to figure out sort of that, um, you know, cross channel promotion that everybody is trying to figure out. Uh, so it's certainly, I think I can't say that we're e-com pros yet, but we've definitely seen it become a much larger part of our business model. And I think it's going to only become more. You, you also have this marvelous flexibility, um, in that, and let's just say, I'm going to I'll ask you about it soon, but, but let's just say mango suddenly was on the horizon for some form or another. Yeah. Um, you can use e-commerce to test right. to pilot that without disrupting and, or having to make a large investment in just putting it out there on the shelf and seeing if anybody yeah. buys it. Oh, a hundred percent. And we also used our, um, you know, we've also used it for cross promotions with other brands. Like we've done some surprise and delight campaigns where we'll include another product in our orders and like our product will be included in another brand's orders just to kind of like test out your exactly as you're saying, it's a testing ground that you don't normally have access to otherwise. Um, and yeah, we've also talked about like, if we are to release new products next year, which that's been one challenge of COVID, I will say with an international supply chain product development has not really been, uh, feasible. (laughs) So I'm, I'm actually hoping to return to Uganda this summer and work on some of that, but exactly as you said, kind of testing things out online before we break into a new category on the shelf, for example. Um, and that's sort of, um, yeah, we're lucky to have that. And as you're looking forward with, obviously without, you know, uh, spilling secrets, but, uh, (laughs) are, are you looking within fruit, different fruits and flavors, or are you looking at something something else in the plant area. Yeah. So I think we're going to stay in the realm of fruit, but it's going to evolve in what we're doing with it. If that makes okay. sense. So yeah, I have some ideas for some actually upcycled uh, products that I'm eager to launch. Um, I have to be smart though, because we know how much cash it takes to break into new uh, categories and stuff. Oh yes. Uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, I think that the potential 
is really there. Uh, you know, like I said, part of why I chose Uganda, not only the personal connection, but really I've never tasted as many fruits and as many delicious fruits as when I was living there. Like I could live off of fruit every day there. And even a banana there tastes a hundred times better than a banana here. So I think there's just, I'm just so excited by the fact that these farmers have all this stuff right there. And we just have to think of clever ways to combine them and introduce them. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. A lot lot of fun. Um, So one of the things I I did want to ask you about was um, in, in terms of, um, choosing the fruits and stuff. Now, a while back, we had folks from the Goran Gosa project in Mozambique. Mm, and yeah, yeah. They're, yeah, and they're dealing in coffee. But in Mozambique at that point in time, when they were doing it, coffee, they grew coffee, but kind of like your folks with the jackfruit. Mm-hmm. They, they grew it to drink it, but not to sell it. Yeah. It wasn't a commercial. And this this concept, how, how do you take the concept of something that grows maybe fairly wildly and put it into, okay, we're harvesting, we need a certain amount of, you know, pounds, you know, how, how did all that build out? Were they prepared for that or? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm certainly not an agronomist or an expert in that regard. And so we did definitely partner with locals. Like I think leveraging local talent is huge when you're dealing with farmers because the farmers know how to farm. Um, They might need help, you know, in organizing, they might need help in pricing, you know, but they know how to farm and they, they know that much better than I do. Um, and so we actually partnered with an agronomist as well as a couple, um, we call them quote unquote extension service team members. Sure, sure, um, yeah. So they're kind of the liaisons that they find the kind of farmers groups. They work with them to analyze their farms and, and figure out like, this is our output. This is how many trees we have. This is that kind of aggregating that data and um, finding the regions where it's richest, finding, you know, okay, right now, let's say we have a network of over a thousand farmers, but we're only actively sourcing from 300, you know, that's just an example, but kind of looking ahead to build that out and understand what it's going to take. And also looking ahead in terms of if it takes a jackfruit tree, for example, eight years to grow, <laughs> who wants to start planting jackfruit trees? Like, right, so right. I think, um, it's, it's definitely a lot of tapping into the local talent and, and just the local um, know-how. Um, and, and, and there's been sort of, I think one of our challenges early on too, even beyond just production was also managing farmer expectations because it was my first time in this rodeo as well. And so I, you know, that people always joke about demand plans, meaning nothing, especially at this stage. And <laughs> I can tell you that was a hundred percent true. And, and farmers aren't used to that. They're very much used to the middleman comes, they buy this amount, this boom, 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 this is happening. and so I think it was hard to kind of that ebb and that flow of like, well, I think we'll need this much then. Like, what can you provide this and that? You know, can we commit to purchasing X percent? Um, yeah. There's yeah. been a, a lot of kind of negotiating and and relationship building that happens behind the scenes. Um, but I would say that's, that's something that I've learned um, a lot about, but it's still definitely, I, I often defer to like the experts on the ground for that, for sure. I, I I think there's a book here somewhere because yeah. one of the things about your story, Renee, that's just great is that it starts in academia. And, and we know so few academics who in fact try to, you know, put it's just the nature of the beast, right? Yeah. To try to put that into action. But you've taken so you take something that you modeled, modeled extensively, 
Mm-hmm. And then you've got, oh, well, this is, you know, and to line up the chapters with the what actually happened. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Great. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it, if you were, uh, you know, going back on it, I think um, glad that you had the partnerships and stuff and, and openness from buyers. There are buyers out there who do think that way. We know the others as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, but but you really you know, got into fairly mainstream sprouts is fairly mainstream. It's, mm-hmm. it's not like selling to health food stores, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and trying to struggle out. So that's, that portends for great things. Also the clean eating, um, the label reading, all these things that have intensified now due mm-hmm. to the pandemic. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of those people who shop in just traditional grocery stores, yeah. they're in Kroger, they're in Albertsons, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Ralph's. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that that's going to get a good, um, you know, I, I think you'll get a good read off that and, yeah. and they want to have these kinds of products in their stores, certainly more than they did, you know, five or six years ago. Um, as you were going through this journey, can you share with us what uh, you thought was probably the hardest thing you had to do the biggest challenge and how you got around it? Yeah. Um, I have a few, <laughs> um, I, I always joke with people that I highly do not recommend my business model <laughs> to anybody just in the sense that it's not, it was not the easiest. It was not the fastest. And, you know, it's taken <laughs> get here. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think one thing in the beginning, um, was really our, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm like stopped because I was about to say one challenge and I was like, well, this was harder. No, <laughs> um, that's okay. But- <laughs> you can have more than one. Yeah. So I think, um, one thing is kind of more a theme I'll say that I always have to revisit and I actually just revisited it again the other day, but I think especially as a solo entrepreneur, um, there's a lot of solo (laughs) face-offs. So a lot of, you know, what they say, decision fatigue and a lot of, um, comparing and a lot of, trying to look for answers and a lot of, you know, just battling with yourself. Um, And I've certainly had my fair share of that. And I think, you know, it's something that I'm continuing to refine and get better at. And I think now we're really at the point that I'm I'm really actively trying to delegate and delegate and delegate. (laughs) But um, I think especially in the beginning, you know, for me, it was so hard to know how to take a step forward. And and I just remember the first time we got our first order online, this is like when I first started, I wanted to quit because I was like, I was like, oh, I don't have a system for sending out orders. I can't do it. It's done. Yeah, it's it's done. Um, You know, you've ordered stuff from Uganda, but now you can't ship it out. Like you're done. Uh, So, so I think, you know, really just that practice of one thing at a time, getting out of your own head and also just like keeping your blinders on. I think that's something that, again, I'm still working on actively um, because there's so much you could possibly do that. I think that, you know, I really admire my peers who are good at, I had a friend say this the other day, maybe he'll listen, but um, he was telling me that he's just gotten really good at firing himself. And I was like, that's a great way to say it. Like, he's just like, I've just gotten good at being like, no, actually that's not your job. You're done. Like you're doing this now. And, and I think that, you know, that's something that has been a big challenge for me just consistently in running the business. Um, but I think if we're looking at like one challenge, um, 
I do think that the initial kind of um, issues with our our third party that was pr- processing our our fruit and stuff. I learned a lot uh, in terms of contracts and in terms of managing expectations and in terms of implementing quality control systems and 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 ultimately, you know, yes, the solution was finding our own uh, our own production facility, kind of starting fresh. Um, but I wouldn't have been able to do that. Like I wouldn't have out, been able to out the gate open our own production facility, right? Like, wow. yeah, no, I was no. only able to do that. After learning and seeing all the challenges we had with our previous suppliers and, you know, that was anything from like we would import hundreds of kilos of product and could only use 30% because we had to sift through everything because it wasn't good. Like going through things like that, where literally into the night, you're hand packing plantain chips one by one by one, you know, like not fun, but I, you know, I think that kind of persistence through that and knowing that there's a lesson in it. Um, you know, I think yeah. that that can be a really helpful as much as it sucks in the moment, you're never going to have a shortage of things kind of sucking <laughs> for lack of a better word. And so I think it's just kind of knowing, you know, how to apply that in the future. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's sort of, I think my biggest learning, uh, moving forward. Uh, and and that's awesome, and, and you've and you've obviously done it, and you articulate it very well in terms of those challenges because it's exactly what it is. I I, I have a friend that one day in frustration, he was in the middle of a camp a campaign fundraising campaign, mm-hmm. and was having a production issue at a co packer, and we were at a store where he was supposed to meet the category manager and do a walk yeah. through the store, and he says, "When does this end?" Mm-hmm. And I said, "It ends when you sell to General Mills." It doesn't yeah. end until then. You're going to yeah. keep going to stores. You're going to keep dealing with co- co-packing, co-manufacturing issues, and you're going to keep raising money because that's the game. That's how it works, you know, and you just have to have to get used to it. That's yeah. actually, well, I really appreciate you taking the time, Renee, to share with us today. It's a great story, great product um, products. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, we're going to, we're going to talk some more, have you back on the show again, a little further down the line. When you know you're all over the place with this stuff, it should be it should be a lot of fun. And I want you to work on that book. So you know, yeah, right. Cool. You do that. I also want to thank everybody else for joining us today on the Next Level Brands podcast, part of the Next Level Brands CPG community. If you have a growing firm in food, beverage, health and wellness, or even small goods, you should be part of the Next Level Brands community. Education, resources, workshops, and founder coaching. More information available at nextlevelbrands.com. That's next with two X's. I'm Steve Clear, and we will see you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Next Level Brands Podcast with G. Stephen Clear. Learn more at next with two X's, levelbrands.com. While you're there, be sure to sign up for the Next Level Brands email list or subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an episode.